The Steve Lobby Agency presents The Christian Publishing Show, a podcast for writers who want to advance Christ's kingdom using the written word. Here's your host, Thomas Umstadt Jr. How do I write a novel? This is one of the most common questions writers ask. They ask it as they get started. They ask it as they finish their first book. And sometimes they ask it even after writing half a dozen books. And they definitely ask, how do I write a better novel? Well, when it comes to writing a novel, there are four essential pieces that you need to include. Four pillars, if you will, that will help your novel stand up to criticism and withstand the storms of publishing. And most importantly, resonate with readers. And we have a special guest on the show today who's going to talk about these four uh, pillars. She is an award-winning author of over 30 fiction and nonfiction books, a writing coach, a workshop instructor, a book copy editor, and she loves helping writers write their best books. And you can find her writing for life workshops at cslankin.teachable.com. C.S. Lankin, welcome to the Christian Publishing Show. Thank you so much for having me. So why is it important to have structure for your novel? Why, why follow these four pillars? I would answer very succinctly, uh, to save time. <laughs> I don't know if that sounds funny, but I think writers often waste a lot of time just winging it, writing draft after draft, throwing drafts out, starting all over. When you learn novel structure or basic story structure and you understand that for the most part, almost every good story has the same basic foundation or structure to it, it makes it so much easier. And you do save time. You don't end up writing a lot of scenes that you have to throw out. You don't end up pulling your hair out, frustrated, trying to figure out what do I do next in my story. So when you build a story, it's kind of like building a house in the sense that you can create a foundation, a basic foundation. I used to build a lot of houses with my husband. So, you know, you dig a perimeter or trenches and you, you know, do rebar and you get it all ready for pouring your concrete. And when you create that foundation, what you build on top of it can be, you know, countless varieties of styles, right? You could build a skyscraper, you could build a cute little cottage, you could build a shopping mall, right? Um, the foundation principles are the same. They're going to vary in terms of, you know, how much rebar you're going to use or how thick the rebar is. But when you think about building a story with that type of analogy or metaphor, then you realize that you can use the same basic materials, I guess you could say, and the same elements or ingredients to create pretty much any type of story. So what's nice about that is that it doesn't change from genre to genre. In other words, you can take these like four essential pillars that that I've come up with that I feel are those foundational pieces and use them to create just about any story. Of course, there's always going to be exceptions to that rule. Uh, People will say, well, what about this novel? It doesn't follow this structure at all. And that's true. We see that. And some novels are very successful that break a lot of these rules. But my feeling always is if you give yourself the benefit of starting with the most common or expected elements to a story, then that's going to give you a leg up. You're, you're not going to, it's not going to steer you wrong. Whereas if you ignore those foundational pillars or structural elements, you're risking, 
your foundation being a bit shoddy. It's kind of like if you decide to build a three-story house and you decide on the first floor you're maybe going to leave one corner support off. And then you're going to just take your chances that when you're on the third floor and you're jumping on that corner up and down, that you're not going to collapse your building, right? So I just feel that um, that's a good starting place for people. So I just want to first state that. The obvious that, of course, there's going to be exceptions, but I do want to encourage writers, especially beginning writers who don't have the depth of skill and experience to venture outside the envelope and try experimental structure um, to just help them on that pathway to success, especially if they're looking to write a commercially successful novel. There's a big difference between knowing what the rules are and choosing to break them because you're serving a higher rule and just not knowing what the rules are and blundering forward. Right. It's the difference between a novice and an expert. And once you've mastered the rules, you can know uh, when and why to break the rules, but you have to master the rules first. So with that said, let's jump into pillar number one. What is the first pillar of an excellent novel? Great. So let me just also preface this, that these four corner pillars, there's not an order to them. Uh, I mean, you all obviously have to speak about them in some sort of order, but just be aware that you can work on them and should work on them holistically. And this is the whole approach to these four pillars is to make sure that all four of these pillars are really strong. Just like if you had four pillars holding up a heavy roof, you'd want them all to pretty much be the same strength, the same thickness, the same height. So you have that sturdy foundation. So I start with protagonist with a goal, but you can start with anything. When I work on a lot of my novels, I start with theme because theme is what I'm attracted to. So oftentimes I'll come up with an idea, like I want to write a book that's about, you know, somebody who's willing to sacrifice everything to save strangers. And like, what is that? What does that look like? And how then can I develop a story based on that? So don't get too tripped up of, of in the order of these four pillars. Um, and try to have that holistic approach. So as you're working on one pillar, it should trigger ideas for the other pillar. And then you want to kind of work on all of them and get them all strong before you're ready to move on. My, my encouragement for especially beginning writers is to get these four pillars really locked in before you move on to what I have listed in my 12 key pillar book as the other eight pillars. And although we're not going to discuss those today, you can learn more about those you know, in the book. But these are the basics. So protagonist with a goal, this is a really, really important element for your story, because most stories are about one character pursuing a short term goal, after an incident occurs that shifts them in the direction toward that goal. And this is basically how story master and screenwriting consultant Michael Haig puts it. And when you look at movies, um, plays, novels, for the most part, unless they are a big biography, such as like the biography of Gandhi, or they're a a family saga that's going to go across many, many generations. Most of these types of stories are going to be about one character pursuing a goal and 
that goal gets resolved at the climax. So if you're working on a novel and you can't easily tell somebody, oh yeah, my protagonist wants this and this is what they're pursuing in the story, then you have a serious problem because what happens then is you end up with a novel that is pretty much about people that are doing various things and they have their ups and downs and their relational drama or whatever you have in that story, but there's no focus. There's no... uh, purpose for the whole story because your protagonist doesn't have a purpose, right? So you need to think about what that goal is that your character is pursuing and the inner motivation of that character that's pushing them toward that goal is based on what they care about, what they're passionate about. And, you know, that bleeds in again to the concept and the conflict and the high stakes, all of that, which we'll get into in a moment. But so just keep that in mind. Uh, There aren't there are only a few basic goals in a story. And those goals are usually about um, they describe conflict, you know, man against man, man against nature. So that's where the conflict part comes in. But the goal is usually going to be for a character to try to get something or win something deliver something like a message, retrieve something, rescue someone, win something. So those are really the basic goals in every story. And while the character's goal can change in aspect as they're pursuing the goal, their initial goal might be to be hired by uh, the top high school as a, as a, uh, coach for their teams or something, which is what we see in the movie McFarland USA. So the character might have an initial goal, like that's my goal, I really want more than anything else to be the top coach of the top school. But then by the time we get to the climax, and everything that the character's gone through in that story, which is a true story, this teacher ends up in a school that he doesn't want to be teaching at, which he doesn't feel is a great place for him to advance his career. He creates a cross-country running team. They go to the state championship numerous times. And by the climax of the story, he gets offered his dream, his heart's desire, which is to teach at the top school, but he turns it down. So we often see that the character's goal will change because they change. So just keep that in mind that when you're developing your protagonist with a goal, oftentimes your character is going to have an initial goal at the beginning based on who they are at the beginning of the story. But as the story changes, just in just as in that uh, McFarland USA story, the character realizes that what they really want is something different. So what that character, what that person in real life actually decided when given the opportunity to have his goal reached is he turned it down because he realized that his goals changed. He wants to stay with this community, work with these kids. That was more important to him at that point than getting what he initially wanted. So keep in mind that the goal can morph, but... It's always a goal of some sort that your character is pursuing based on their core need, their heart's desire. It could also be based on their past, their family trauma, all those different elements, you know, all come into play with us as humans as we pursue goals in our life. When I work with an author uh, helping them develop a pitch, one of the first questions I ask if they're a novelist is, who is the protagonist of your story and what do they want more than anything else in the world? 
if they were Loki, what what is the um, glorious purpose that they are burdened with? Right? And Loki's like, I've been burdened with glorious purpose. And it's like, aha, he's a protagonist. A protagonist <laughs> isn't necessarily the hero. Uh, yeah. The and there's a lot of stories where the protagonist is actually the villain and the um, heroes are the ones trying to stop him. Right. So uh, the movie uh, Infinity War, right? Thanos is the protagonist. He's the one making decisions to move the story forward. He's the one burdened with glorious purpose and, all, and Iron Man and Captain America and the others are trying to stop him from doing what he wants to do, which is why the ending is so satisfying, even though. The bad guy wins because the protagonist gets what he wants. So uh, it doesn't, and, and it switches. So in the sequel, not to spoil it, but um, he's the antagonist in the next movie <laughs> as they get their revenge. It's okay. You can spoil those movies. They're just stu- superhero movies. <laughs> after, after $2 billion worth of sales, um, that you, I expect everyone who's going to see it has seen it. But it's really important for protagonists to be the ones to make decisions to move the plot forward. And in my experience working with authors who struggle with this question of what does your protagonist want more than anything else in the world, they are committing one of the writing sins, which is a passive protagonist, which is somebody who things are happening to. And this is really bad to do if your protagonist is also the hero because what you end up doing is you make the villain the more interesting character of your story. And uh, you really make evil look interesting and you make good look boring. <laughs> and your, quote, Christian book, unquote, is counterproductive, right? So your protagonist needs to be making decisions, right? Katniss Everdeen needs to volunteer as tribute to go uh, to the Hunger Games, not be dragged by the evil um, power to the Hunger Games. The fact that she chooses changes her as a character and how much you like her as a character dramatically. Yeah, and you can start off with a character who's very passive and uh, uninspired and all those things, but you better quickly have that inciting incident occur that starts sparking a desire in the character to move towards something. So it's okay if they start off kind of wimpy or they start off passive or whatever, but just don't stay there very long and make sure you don't make your character pitiable instead of empathetic. (laughs) Yeah, I would say that's true if it's your second or third book or if you already have a fan base. But if you are an unknown author writing a very first story and you're having to grab people with those first pages, having an unappealing protagonist even one who gets redeemed later, you're never going to have a chance to show that redemption because they won't give you the chance and they'll throw the book away. Right. So uh, there are writing techniques and writing rules that shift a little bit, right? When you're Tolkien and you've already written the best selling Hobbit book, you don't have to start Lord of the Rings with a bang because people trust that you'll get there eventually. Uh, But he didn't do that with his first book. Hobbit gets started pretty quickly uh, compared to Lord of the Rings. Yeah. Yeah. But you know, you can start, You know, I I think about like a movie like um, Sleeping with the Enemy, where you have a character who's married to a really abusive, violent, evil, horrible man. And it starts off with the character in her real world where she is a victim, she's passive, she is trapped. um, But... Again, you know, you see right away inclinations and core need and things driving her, you know, this desire to want to get out, to want to live an independent free life, to get free from him. So it presents this interesting challenge and dangerous situation with high stakes right from the beginning. And again, you can start with a character in a situation like that, but you need to quickly get them, uh, show that they're empathetic, right? Not just 
pitiable. And, and there is a big difference. You don't want characters to, to be so pitiable that readers think they're awful and don't care about them and don't care, you know, like you made a big mess and it's your problem and you never got out of it. So why should I care about you? Right? So you need to show some glimpses right from the beginning of that character being redeemable, being admirable. There has to be some strengths that come through. And then again, quickly, you need to get that inciting incident. So in that movie, for instance, it's very, as soon as we really realize what a trap this person is in, we start seeing things shift when and she decides to be assertive, take control, and find a way out of that bad situation. And it's fascinating because then we root for her and we want to see how is she going to get out of that. So yeah, uh, definitely important to uh, not have this, you know, passive, boring character that has no motivation, isn't interested in anything, Um that doesn't want something really bad. So that's where that's where that passion comes in, you know, whether they're trapped in a bad marriage, or whether they're, you know, trapped in an avalanche or whatever, they have to want to get out. Uh, But that's the goal, right? They have to be pursuing that goal. What is the goal? The goal is to get out to escape. That is a valid goal for a lot of stories. So we have a protagonist and they want something. They're burdened with glorious purpose. What's the next pillar? How do we uh, make what that antagonist wants hard to get, right? It's like, I want a uh, snack, so I go to the refrigerator and I get a snack. That's not an interesting story. So what are some of the other pillars we need to build around that one? Uh, It can be if something weird happens when you open the refrigerator door, which is that great twist that you didn't expect, (laughs) which leads me into that second pillar, which is concept with a kicker. So here's the thing. Most stories have been done a million times, right? And a lot of times writers are thinking, well, I got to come up with like this really original story. Most of the time you don't. Most of the time, you're just taking the same old kind of story, especially with a romance. Guy meets girl. They don't get along. They finally fall in love and they live happily ever after, right? I mean, we see this a billion times or like there's 17,000 mail order bride, you know, uh, stories, but they all sell a lot, right? So it's not that readers want an absolutely unique story, though those high concept stories are great. And if you can develop one, a concept like that, which is what I call with a kicker because it's, it's a twist or something new and fresh, those are going to be great. Like that's why the Hunger Games, for instance, was already such a high concept because all you had to do is say to somebody, hey, this story is about blah, blah, blah. And anybody hearing it would go, wow, I wonder how that's going to play out. How will that work? I mean, how can the writer write a story like that with so much violence and make it intriguing and palatable, right? So the concept with a kicker is basically challenging writers to come up with a really unique, fresh premise. And a premise is a what if, right? What if a comet's coming to Earth and somebody has to stop it? It's always about a situation that a character has to deal with, whether it's a personal, internal challenge, like, you know, somebody going mad and they have to try to prevent themselves from going crazy, right? Uh, Find solutions to that. Or whether it's an external thing, like the comet. But what... I've noticed a lot in the hundreds and hundreds of manuscripts that I've critiqued and edited is many of these stories have a very weak premise. Their concept is boring. There's no twist or surprise or any, what we used to call the story hook, which is inherent in the concept. Um, Back in the day, we used to say, hey, what's your, what's your story hook? Meaning like, you've got the ordinary type of story idea, 
but what have you done to it that has given it this cool twist, given it a hook? And the best types of stories or concepts with a kicker are ones that have a twist or a hook in the premise itself. We see this a lot with with mystery genre or suspense genre where you'll have like a detective story and everything builds and builds and builds to the climax, but the hook or the twist is in the big climax moment where the guy you thought was the killer was really not the killer and it was the mailman that was delivering the mail every day, right? And all the clues are there all along, but we get the twist in the actual concept or the premise. So that's really common uh, with suspense thrillers, mysteries, detective stories, crime stories, because that's what readers expect. That's very entrenched in the genre itself. But if you're writing in other genres, you can do the exact same thing. You can have a premise like a romance novel that is about a woman who is living alone on a deserted island and some guy washes up on the shore or whatever. And you can take a twist to that story by thinking of a, a surprise hook to that to that situation that the story builds to based on secrets or, you know, um, just information that the reader, the reader and the character doesn't have access to until later on. So that's where the concept with a kicker comes in. Just take your idea and work really hard at making it doesn't have to be high concept, but making it at least have some sort of fresh, situation to it. It could be where you set it, the setting or the era that you set it in. You could have, um, you know, a character have an interesting career. I read so many manuscripts where the careers or the jobs that the characters have are so boring and they're so useless in terms of how they could help the plot character is like going to work and she's doing sales every day and you show scenes of the character at work and they're having sales meetings and it's just so boring because there's just nothing happening there there's no real um hey now somebody used to do sales it was very (laughs) intense (laughs) okay you can make any boring job (laughs) yeah well so every job is boring to somebody but i want to go back a little bit because you threw out a term a couple of times that people in california and screenwriters are very familiar with my experience is that people outside of the screenwriting world have no idea what it means. And that's the phrase high concept. So what is a high concept? Okay, so uh, one definition I heard of high concept is you tell me your idea for your novel slash movie slash play, and I have to kill you because it's such a great idea. I got to write it and I don't want you to write it because I want to like have the success from the story. That is a classic Hollywood definition. Yeah, it's all violence and no information. (laughs) All violence and nothing else. Yeah. So the basically a high concept is a story that will stand like just if you just give the elevator pitch, it will stand on its own. In Hollywood, it means you'll be able to sell that idea even if you don't have a, a top actor already committed to the project and a top director. You can just pitch that idea and the the uh film company or the backers will say, oh, I love the idea of this Hunger Games. I don't care who stars in it. It's such an incredible concept. I can picture how amazing this is going to be and it's going to sell a bazillion tickets, right? So high concept is basically a concept that stands on its own and um, is just, you know, it's just fresh and unique and original. But like I said, you don't have to have a high concept. High concept, of course, makes it a lot easier to, you know, sell your story or get readers interested, 
Uh, so I always try to aim for some kind of a high concept with my stories. But uh, if you're just doing the same old kind of story, like I mentioned, like a typical romance story, but you're setting it in a unique place, like an elevator, you know, your two characters are stuck in an elevator the entire novel because of a blackout or because of an alien invasion or whatever, right? So it all just depends on what your premise is, the situation that the characters are in. One way I've heard it described is high concept is a very simple story without a lot of complexity or nuance. So it's snakes on an airplane. So, so what's what's the movie about? It's about snakes and they're on an airplane. <laughs> I, I've never heard that definition, but that makes sense. Yeah. As opposed to low concept, which is more popular in Europe uh, and European filmmaking. So it's, it's often this real, like the difference between European films and American films. So European films tend to be very nuanced. They tend to be very character driven. They tend to be very complicated. And to non-Europeans, they tend to be very bizarre and they don't sell very well internationally. Whereas American films are very simple. It's guys with big muscles driving fast cars trying to get away from bad guys with big muscles driving fast cars and it's like everybody in the world it's like yeah it's like and it, and and there's a million of these and each movie there's a new guy with even bigger muscles than the last guy driving an even faster car yeah. doing an even yeah. bigger stunt yeah, uh, that's kind of classic hero. yeah yeah or another superhero movie and Oftentimes, authors want don't want to write a high-concept story. They want to write a low-concept story. They want to write a nuanced, character-driven story. And mm -hmm. there is room in the market for that kind of story, but it's a lot less room because most people want a simpler story. They they want something similar to what they already like. Um, and and you may be like, oh, those you know unsophisticated people. It's like, yeah, but when was the last time you ate Ethiopian food? Right. It's like chances are when you go out to eat, you go out to the same kind of food you went out to last year and the year before that. And if you haven't tried Ethiopian food, you're really <laughs> missing out. It's amazing. But you know what? Americans don't eat Ethiopian food and they, they, because they don't eat new stuff. Right. Uh, obviously, I'm, I'm overstating here, but you can't change people. You can't tell people, hey, you know what? I think you'd really like eating with your hands. It's it's an, a fun experience. And sure, all of the ingredients are different, but it's it's a you really should try it. Most people are like. No, that's too weird for me. I don't want that. I want what I've already had. I want to go to the Olive Garden like I do every month. So just a caveat to caveat, just so we don't miss, so that people don't misunderstand what you're saying, is that we're not talking about that, uh, that you have to write a lot of action. Like a simple story isn't always about all those bad guys chasing other bad guys. I mean, this can be a very much a uh, relational drama that's very sweet and that moves very at a, at a slower pace, um, a simple story, right, that um, has a lot of heart to it. So, so yeah, don't get locked into thinking that. Guy gets girl, guy loses girl, guy gets girl back is the classic high concept romance. And it's the one that 90% of all romances follow. And if you want to read the first one that kicked off that genre, I believe it was um, Much Ado About Nothing by uh, Shakespeare, it, which was the first kind of classic um, version of that that all romances are derivative from. And so you owe it to yourself if you have not... Uh, read much to do about nothing or watched it one of the versions you owe it to yourself to encounter it and uh you know listen to the banter and how you know that was sort of the basis for like <laughs> thin man and then castle and then moonlighting um all those shows yeah because of the two the two the love interests always bantering back and forth and and uh determined not to give in to the other person right and it's still funny after 500 years which is <laughs> remarkable <laughs> 
It's probably not as funny as it was when it first came out, but the humor has aged surprisingly well. Yeah, yeah. Especially if it's done, you know, acted well. Yeah. So let's go to the next pillar. Uh, so we've talked about the protagonist needs to want something. You need to have a, put that protagonist in a setting uh, or give them a concept around the story that's interesting with a hook, but it's, it needs to be new, but not too new, which means you really need to be familiar <laughs> with your genre to know that sweet spot. Yes. What's yes. the next pillar of a good story? So you can't have any story at all that doesn't have tension and tension is conflict and you need conflict and you don't want to have just random conflict like show characters yelling and arguing all the time because, you know, I grew up with friends whose parents argued all the time and I did not want to be in the house and listen to all of that. So uh, conflict isn't interesting unless it's significant, meaningful. So you want conflict and high stakes. And these two things go hand in hand because think about it. If your character is passionate about something and they're trying to pursue a goal because they're passionate about it, whether it's to save an older child who's been sold to sex trafficking in France or whatever, you need to have conflict, which is the obstacles in the way, right? And the conflict is also inner. So you need inner and outer conflict. You need things happening to the character, around the character, with the character as they're pursuing that goal they care about. But you also need to have that inner conflict where they're struggling all the time with whatever those things are, vulnerability, doubts, um, hard choices, moral dilemmas, right? All of that. So pack it with full of conflict. But the high stakes are an interesting component to that because we always think of high stakes like, okay, high stakes mean like it has to only apply to that those movies you were talking about where like the superhero has to save the world because that's the high stakes. What you need to understand as a writer is that high stakes are only, only about what your character cares about, okay? So if your character, such as... Uh, the girl in Fly Away Home, the movie Fly Away Home, she is has you know hatched these goose eggs and she wants to save these geese. And in order to save them from the fishing game guy who wants to clip their wings, she's got to build these flying machines with her father and they're going to fly from Canada down to the southeastern coast area and relocate these geese. So to the average person, like who cares, right? Like, do you really care about like spending every moment of your life trying to save like some little cute fuzzy geese that grow big feathers after a while? Um, well, the reason we love that movie, that story, is because it has so much heart. And it is not just about a girl that's just, you know, found some geese and, like, she doesn't really care about them that much. But she's bored and has nothing else to do, right? It's because of the passion that she has. Why does she need to save these geese? Well, her mother just died in a car accident and, and she was in New Zealand. She gets flown to Canada to live with this dad she doesn't even know. It's all about her grieving and not having, you know, not being able to deal with life. And she hooks onto these geese as like this purpose that is like her purpose driven life, right? And it's the vehicle in the story for her to find her father, you know, to connect with her father and her father to connect with her and to finally feel like she has a home and hope and and comfort and solace and all the things that she needs, right? It's her core need that is driving her. So whenever you have a character, your character can be passionate about winning a cake baking contest. And I talk about this in my, in my book, that if the character has 
a really good reason for wanting to win this contest. And when I say really good reason, it's a reason that the readers can relate and resonate with and respond to. Like, you want to win a cake baking contest so that you can brag to your friends? I'm not interested. But if you want to win a cake baking contest because, you know, your mother's last dying wish was that she could you know, start this halfway house for runaway girls in the town and the cake baking contest will win you uh, $50,000. And that is the money that you need in order to and buy that piece of property so you can fulfill that dream for your mother. Whatever that motivation is, you know, that's, that's the high stakes. That's what's at stake for your character. Everything is on the line as they pursue that goal and go after their dream or their core need or their, they have to escape or whatever it is. Um, what is at stake for your character is what matters to them, right? It's not that they killed your dog. It's that they yeah. killed the dog that your wife gave you right before she died of cancer as a way of remembering her and of grieving. But but what matters about the stakes is that it has to matter to the protagonist in a really believable way. So, for instance, my daughter, this morning, there was a big rain shower, and she wanted to go out and play in the rain shower. <laughs> but for her to go out and play in the rain shower, she needed three things. She wanted her rain boots. She wanted her cute little raincoat. She wanted her pink umbrella. And getting these three things for a two-year-old is a big challenge. To get the umbrella, she had to convince a parent to go out in the rain to the car to get the umbrella, which is a challenging, you know, persuasion task for a toddler. And then she had to find her raincoat and then she had to find her rainbows and she had gotten everything. She found one rain boot, but she couldn't find the other rain boot. And she is crying. She's like, she wants to go out in the rain before the rain stops. Cause in Texas, you know, it stops and starts all at once. And, and for her, this is everything. It mattered more for her to find that one rainbow than it mattered that the world was coming to an end. <laughs> or that there's flooding or any of the kind of classic superhero high stakes for her. The high stake was, I want to go out and play in the rain. And she did. She finally found it. And she's like, I'm happy now. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's your, that's her goal. That was short term goal. And there were obstacles in her way. Right. Um, Might not be like the most, you know, engaging story for, uh, certain types of readers, but for a little kid's children's book, it but for would be a children's great story, book though, yeah, right? it can really yeah, resonate. huge, huge obstacle. Like I need to get out in the rain, and then like to go out there and then have the sun, the rainbow come out, and everything is great. Yeah, it, it would be awesome. Of course, you could like turn it into a really dark and creepy story where like she goes out and all of a sudden it stops raining, and every time she tries to, you know, uh, she closes her umbrella. You have to make everything so dark. It opens back up again. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. You can twist it. Yeah, I'm just like looking for that concept with a kicker. But um, yeah, so just keep in mind that you don't have to have big stakes. Like you definitely want to have public stakes in your story if you can. In other words, your character has private stakes. Like this is at stake for my character. She wants to get these geese to South Carolina to a refugee area so her geese can survive, right? But what's high stakes publicly is like what happens to the people around her and the community around her. I mean, she and her dad fly down and cross the line from Canada to America and they have to land and the only place they can land, you know, for the night is this what looks like some sort of an abandoned, you know, airport or something. It turns out to be an army base and all these soldiers come out with guns pointing at them and they've landed in this, you know, place where they're not supposed to be. So there's some high stakes that are that are bigger, uh, you know, bigger obstacles, bigger, you know, involve more people. But um, 
remember that you don't have to have public stakes, but it can really help a lot. One, one movie that I love to refer to is the Milagro Beanfield War, because I love that movie. And it's a story about a small little town, I think in New Mexico, where I can really relate to now because they've been suffering basically kind of from a drought. And here in California, we forgot what rain looks like and wish you guys could send it over our way. But the, the whole story premise is about a, a man who has a little patch of beans that he's growing and he, and he wants to use the water from the water ditch that runs along his property. But now the big corporation has come in and they've t- taken over the water rights and now the people in the town don't have access to the water that they've always had access to. Well, what's at stake? About 50 bean plants. Like, really? Who cares? <laughs> but what you know really so you think and then in the in the real world in normal life the guy would just say oh i guess i just won't grow any beans this year right well what the story ha- does is it escalates it into this huge story of, with universal themes huge public stakes because it becomes a david and goliath story about a small little town fighting the big corporation and it's all about like i don't know 10 gallons of water right because at some point Early on in the story, the guy's saying, well, forget this. And he digs into the ditch and he starts using the water and it sets off a water war, right? Which has huge public stakes. And of course, you know, you can guess what happens at the end. But if you haven't seen the movie, you should see it. It's a fantastic movie. And it's so well structured in terms of rising stakes, rising stakes, bigger stakes, and uh, just great story structure of a character pursuing a goal and how that resolves at the climax. So take a look at these great movies too and deconstruct them as you watch them. And you should be able to identify protagonists pursuing the goal, how the goal changes, how the goal grows, and then what that concept is with the kicker, what makes this a unique concept. We, we've seen a million David and Goliath type stories, but this is set in a very interesting situation with a culture, with these people in this small town and these various characters that play these interesting roles and how they all get involved. And there's an overlying of, uh, overlaying of um, magic surrealism in this because of certain characters that have cultural, religious um, beliefs and speak to spirits. And I mean, there's just really, it's, it's, it's so uh, beautifully unique, even though the concept is pretty ordinary. It's been done many times before. So that really moves me into the last pillar before you ask, because uh, we're heading that way, which is theme with a heart. And while not every story has to have a theme, I really feel that the stories that do tap into universal themes are the better stories, especially if you're writing Christian, you know, books for the Christian market. We, um, you know, we resonate more, we, we were moved more by stories that have a theme. And what you need to remember is that the character's inner motivation made universal is your theme. Okay, so if you don't know what the theme is for your story, or you don't know if you have one, think about what is motivating your character. What do they want? What do they need? They are, you know, they're fighting the system because they don't believe in the death penalty or whatever issue it is. Um, What are they motivated by? What has happened in their past that is making them passionate about this particular topic or or pursuit? And that's where you're going to find your theme. The other place that you can find your theme is at your dark night moment, which is that big scene that you have right before the climax. As you go barreling into the climax, your character is struggling with a moral dilemma or facing their greatest, you know, inner flaws or 
thinking one last time whether it's all worth it to pursue that last gasp goal, you know, to get after that goal. And that's where you're going to find your theme because that's where the character thinks about what do I care about? What do I care about most? What do I need most? What is the most important thing to me? Those are things that are usually universal to other other readers, other people. And the thing also that you need to keep in mind is when you're thinking about theme, universal themes, you don't have to have situations that are general. You can be very, very specific. You can take a story like The Kite Runner, which is set in Afghanistan in a foreign country, in a culture describing characters doing things that you may not know anything about. It's not familiar to you. Normally, the greatest stories are about unique characters in unique places, and you may not have have a related experience to that. I've never been to Afghanistan. I haven't lived in that type of a culture, but I can relate to the universal themes in that story because what the character goes through it, in with the shame and the guilt and what how they how this how this boy then deals with the feelings that he's feeling are very universal and can apply to me and my town in my life. So that's where you want to Find your themes, bring them out. Um, if you can have characters in your story that have opposing views to your character, that helps bring the themes to the surface in an organic way. If your character is opposed to the death penalty and she has a, a partner at work or even a spouse that is, ha, holds the opposite view, that provides conflict with high stakes and it also provides great drama, but that's where your themes can come out. Especially if you can present that opposing view in a very strong way. So the better you present the opposing view, the more persuasive your book ends up being as your character prevails in the end. If your presentation of the opposing view is a straw man, where you're presenting their view in a kind of an unfair or a way they wouldn't phrase it that makes it obviously sound bad, then defeating a strong man, a straw man isn't very interesting, right? You know, nobody wants to watch a boxing match between a man with boxing gloves and a band made out of straw. <laughs> it's not very interesting, <laughs> and it's not very exactly. persuasive. Now, uh, we're almost out of time, but I do want to ask, because we're talking about theme, uh, how do you work the theme into a story without the book becoming overly didactic? Well, that's one way, as I mentioned, is just have the characters, you know, organically express what they're passionate about, what they care about, and having characters that really believe in in their viewpoint. Like you said, like you don't want a straw man, but one one thing that you can do, which is really interesting, that Donald Moss teaches at his week long breakout novel workshop, is he have has you write your synopsis for your book in the point of view of your nemesis or antagonist character. And the reason this was so helpful, and I did this exercise, and it really helped so much in the book, book I was writing at the time, because if you can have your antagonist or opposition, if you have one in your story, I mean, you might not, but if you have a primary antagonist that really believes in what they believe and feels very justified that they're doing the right thing and maybe they're doing what they do because they feel it is best for you or best for their children or best for society, um, then all of a sudden you create that, that believability where the reader often has to 
make their own decisions. Like it becomes almost like a moral dilemma. Like would you, for instance, you are opposed to abortion and I hate to bring up a hot topic, but let's say you are super opposed to abortion, but your own daughter uh, is going to die if she doesn't have an abortion. And the doctors have all said the baby is not going to be viable. The baby's going to die. Um, there is absolutely no hope, you know, then you have this moral dilemma, like where, you know, where is your character going to fit into that, that situation? Where is she? What is she going to do? Is she going to, you know, um, you know, change, uh, try to change uh, her daughter's mind? Or is her daughter going to try to change her mind? I mean, so you've got, you've got to show that, if you can get the closest you can get to some sort of a moral dilemma with your theme, the better, because then it also makes your readers have that same moral dilemma. Like it's almost like a Sophie's choice type thing. Anytime you can give your character two choices, both of them awful, then you have created a, a believable organic situation that doesn't feel like you said, didactic or doesn't feel preachy, right? Because there are pros and cons to both sides. So that's kind of how I approach it. And preachy doesn't work. If you're wondering, why not just do preachy? It's like, well, it doesn't work. People don't want to pay for a book that preaches at them. Generally speaking, sometimes they do. Sometimes they do. Yeah. Yeah. You can have a character that's very preachy and that's in their character, but you don't want it to sound like you, the author, are preaching to the reader. So if you don't know the difference between the two, uh, talk to a writing coach and they will explain it to you. I'm uh, very much enjoying reading. I'm reading uh, Shades of Black by Jonathan Schruger right now. And he has the villain. It's a kind of a classic epic fantasy, but the interesting twist is that the mentor is the villain and the this like super powerful black wizard and uh, the hero is this very virtuous and righteous young man. And the conflict between them allows Jonathan to explore a lot of really interesting questions about the nature of morality and the nature of good and evil. How do you stand up against evil without it being preachy (laughs) because they're having these debates back and forth and there's this interesting power dynamic and it's a really creative way to play with really common tropes, right? The, the young man who learns how to wield the sword and the mentor, right? These are very common tropes in epic fantasy tropes that epic fantasy fans like me don't get tired of. And yet by adding this really minor twist, really, uh, suddenly it becomes very interesting. Cool. What's the author's name? Jonathan Schruger. The, the, uh, Schruger, okay. Yeah, the, the book is In Darkness Cast. I'll put a link to it in the show notes if okay, any cool. of you want to check it out. Because you said Shades of Black, yeah. If you're looking for um, dark Christian fantasy, because it's very violent. He's a Marine, Jonathan Schruger. So uh, <laughs> his violence tolerance has been uh, diminished somewhat in his time <laughs> serving the United States Marines and uh, you see, you see that influence in the book. That's a good. That's a good warning. Yeah. So I'll put I'll put a content warning. It's definitely a PG thirteen Christian book, or even a an R Christian book. Yeah, and that's important to note too. And then think about that too. You when you're describing your books or pitching your books, you need to, you know, bring out those little bits if you're um, getting a little bit graphic on certain things that might offend people. That's right. Um, We are just about out of time, but real quick, I wanted to let you all know about the Christian Writers Institute. And if you're wanting more help by C.S. Lincoln, there are four, sorry, three courses in the Christian Writers Institute. 
by C.S. Lankett. And there's the four foundational pillars of novel construction, which is building on what we've just talked about. There's a, a session on how to make a living as an editor. So if you're curious about making money as an editor or you want to get into that business, this course will show you what you need to know to get started. And then finally, the secret to big Amazon book sales. And then, uh, CS, I know you have a bunch more courses on your website. We'll have links to the selfpublisher.com, critiquemymanuscript.com, liverightthrive.com. You have a lot of resources uh, for authors. But real quick before we go, do you have any uh, final encouragement or uh, tips uh, about crafting good novels? Yeah, I... I would encourage all of you, whether you're just beginning or you've been writing novels for a while, to really dig into the story structure. There are plenty of books out there like James Bell's Plot and Structure. Um, I have a book called Layer Your Novel, which basically lays it out in a nice, simple fashion. I think writing novels is very complicated, and anybody that says otherwise probably hasn't written one or hasn't written a good one. Um, Sorry to say that. But uh, my method for layering, I think, is really approachable because you start with 10 key scenes and then from there you move on to your next 10 key scenes and layer those in. So if you're really struggling with structure, I just I highly encourage you to take the time to learn um, to get those tools because it really makes it writing the writing part of it so much easier. Of course, you know, there's a lot to writing a great scene and having great writing style. And that's a whole other thing. Um, I do about 200 manuscript critiques a year. Uh, mostly novels. And I notice that people struggle with structure a lot. And I feel that that's the first thing that you should should dig into. And then from there, you know, you might want to hire somebody like me, like a writing coach to work with you to point out to you where your areas are weak. It's just like an athlete, you usually have like 10 or 20% uh, where you're weak, and that's what you need to work on the most. But sometimes you don't know what that is. So it really helps to have like a 50 page critique and have people uh, have your scenes, you know, critique so that you can get some feedback and see what you need to work on. And you'll make faster progress than if you just flounder around year after year and don't know whether your writing's any good. Get into a good critique group too. That is really helpful. It can be hard to find good critique partners, but um, yeah, yeah. But I think critique groups are great. I just recently, the beginning of this year started doing a combination mastermind classes with critique groups. So right now I'm finishing up um, my eight weeks to writing a commercially successful novel. And we have seven critique groups, about 60 people. Um, They're grouped by genre. And the two groups I started in January after four months, we completed that whole course, but they're still critiquing. They're still in critique groups and they're continuing together working as uh, uh, partners, helping each other with writing their books, accountability, and just writing better. So any way that you can get into some writing groups, maybe now as we're getting hopefully out of COVID and meeting more in person, try to find some local writers groups where you live. It's great to, to connect online also, but I highly recommend getting involved with your writing community where you live, if possible. You might live out in the middle of nowhere and can't do that, but um, whatever you can do to connect with other writers and form relationships and, and support one another is a great thing to do as a writer. It makes a big difference. Uh, Every writer needs a critique group. And oftentimes that means you have to start your own, which is a lot easier than you might think. And if you need to start your own, I I have a course on that at authormedia.com. But uh, C.S. Lincoln, thank you so much uh, for joining us today. If you want to find out anything more about C.S. Lincoln, do go to our show notes at christianpublishingshow.com. We have links to 
everything mentioned today. And I hope that you all live long and prosper. Thank you for listening to The Christian Publishing Show. For more information and to get episodes delivered to your phone automatically, visit christianpublishingshow.com.